it's certainly not a money-making thing, but you can see if people ask me, well, I don't want you to come speak to our Rotary Club. We have accountants in our Rotary Club. And I say, nobody hires me as a candidate after hearing this presentation. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Where Accountants Go, the Accounting Careers Podcast. I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for this show. Well, today we're going to revisit a topic or a career path, rather, that we haven't touched on in quite a while. That of building an accounting practice from the ground up and seeing it succeed for many, many years. Ben Loggins of Loggins Kern McCombs in Atlanta joined us for this episode. He started his practice in the late 80s after working at the Internal Revenue Service. Plus, and I wasn't expecting this, but we also get into a discussion of a couple of his outside of work interests. Number one, supporting U.S. figure skating a little while back. And then two, Roswell, New Mexico history, believe it or not. Both of those come from what he feels is his number one purpose in life, though, which is being a good father, as both of those were interest of his daughter in earlier years. There really is a lot of value in this episode, though. Obviously, it's fun to talk about the hobby type items, but we also get into a good summary of how his practice was built. And we haven't touched on that career path for a while. This really was a very, very interesting interview. If you do enjoy and learn something from the episode, please share it out. And of course, if there's anything I could do for you in your own career or your accounting organizations that you're involved in, please reach out to me as well. I'm always happy to help. Well, with that, let's go ahead and get started. Here's Ben Loggins with Loggins Kern McCombs in Atlanta. Well, hello, Ben. Welcome to the show. Hey, Mark. Good to be here. Wonderful. Well, for the audience, we haven't had someone on the show that built up a successful accounting practice over many years for quite some time. We've hit on a lot of alternative careers and many startup entrepreneurs, but not someone that's built up a practice over a few decades. So it was really time to revisit such a story. Today, we have Ben Loggins of Loggins Kern McCombs in the Atlanta area joining us, and I'm really looking forward to the wisdom we're going to be able to gain from this episode. Ben started his firm back in the late 80s, and and they've grown, of course, but he's done many other interesting things in his career as well, including some early days at the IRS, actually. This really should be an interesting story. Well, Ben, I do want to get into what Loggins Kern McCombs does today, but first we need to understand how you got to this point. We need to cover the early years. So what led you to consider accounting as a possible career choice in the first place? Well, I always enjoyed numbers. Growing up, numbers attracted me, so I'm not quite sure why. I considered being a mathematician at one point in time, but somehow or another it evolved to accounting seemed like a logical choice of how you immerse yourself in numbers and still can make a good living at it. So that's really how it evolved to that. And so I guess I chose that probably my at the end of my freshman year of college, I chose accounting and I went to a small junior college to begin with up in North Georgia. Then I transferred to Georgia State, which is large university. In fact, the largest university in Georgia, much bigger than Tech or Georgia. And But it's uh, primarily known as a business school. So that's where I got my uh, BBA and then I went on to get my MBA. Okay. When I was looking at your information online, it looked like you started doing some work at the IRS while you were still in college. Is that correct? Well, kind of. My, my problem is I started working when I was 10 years old. I had a paper <laughs> route. So for the next 10 years, although I had other jobs along the way, 
paper coming back to throwing papers. So when I was 20 years old, I had a district with the uh, Atlanta Journal at the time, which about 20 kids under me that had to, I don't want to say beat up to make them throw papers every day, but anyway, manage them and make sure they threw papers. So it's quite an experience. So I was involved in management even at that young age of doing that. So there I was working, I don't know, 40, 50 hours a week and going to school full time. And so my grades averaged out about, a, I don't know, 2.8, 2.9. And so when it came to interviewing process, none of the big firms wanted to even talk to me because I was below a 3.0. And the IRS at the time was hiring. So I ended up at their table and talked to them and they made me an offer and I accepted it. And so for the next uh, six and a half years, I spent that time at the IRS. I started off basically doing employment tax and excise tax and involved owing to pure income tax. And about two years in, they asked me to be an on-the-job instructor. So I did that for sort of about a year and a half out of my six and a half years. And then one point in time, they asked me to be a classroom instructor. So that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed getting about a month of training, watching yourself on video and learning how to instruct before a group. And so I was a classroom instructor for, I think, two sessions, which may maybe total six months or something like that. And so I enjoyed that instructing a lot. And I think later on, you see how after that, I became an instructor at the junior college for several years. But after being at the IRS for, I guess, six years, I passed the CPA exam, but I did the master's degree while I was working full-time at the IRS. And so I was a full-time field agent and did the master's degree at night and got my master's degree and passed the CPA exam. And I went to my boss's boss and said, look, I need to get a promotion last time. And he says, well, you're too young to worry about being promoted. And I was 26 at the time. And I said, you know, I don't think so. And I said, this isn't really where I want to work. I want to work somewhere where I'm appreciated for what I do. And I was doing an audit with uh, Tish Ross at the time, auditing one of their clients. And after the audit was over, they reached out to me and made me an offer, and I accepted it. Uh, I was there for, I don't know, almost three years. After a while, I figured that's not really where I wanted to be either. I wanted to deal with client owners. And the one experience I had at Tush Ross, I don't know how many other people have had this. I, I had a huge grocery store chain. I was representing them in the IRS audit because that was my area of expertise. And after I did it, they wrote me a letter saying, oh, we appreciate the fantastic job you did. And they realized I saved them, I think, about $5 million on their LIFO computation. My boss's boss, the partner in charge of that client, came down to me and he said to me, look, I get all the credit for anything good goes on this client. You need to tell that client that it was under my direct instruction that you did everything you did. And I'm thinking to myself, you turkey, this is not where I want to be either. So that's when I began looking around to leave Tush Ross, which now I believe is Droid Tush, but it was a big eight firm at the time. So I found a friend of mine who had started a small firm. So he and I joined in, in partnership in 1980, and we continued that through about 87. And then we had a parting of the ways. Fun, he decided he wanted to part the ways. I won't go into all the reasons, but they're quite well anyway. So in, in 1987 or so, I remember it was April 15th of 1988 when he said, no, the lease is in my name, so I want you out of the building. So I said, great. And I turned around and it's funny because we divided up the assets 50-50 and it would flip a coin as to who got which stack and flipped the coin 11 times and I wanted to flip 11 times in a row. All my employees were about to die laughing. But uh, all the employees that had been with us for more than six months wanted to go with me and so I ended up taking probably 60% or 65% of the employees and 50% of the work. So this caused a little bit of a dilemma for a couple of years in which I had more staff than work. Having experienced that, it took me about two years to overcome that and fill up the staff. And since then, we've grown from a staff, of, I think we were about six or seven at that time, to about 18 or 19 now. And so it's been quite an experience. Oh, my gosh. Okay. That's covered a lot of years there. <laughs> I'd like to go right. back. <laughs> 
So I'm curious, you said you kept 65% of the team and 50% of the work. Yeah, I'm sure there was some stress there <laughs> in the beginning. Oh, no what did you do it. to make up for the extra time on your team's part? Well, we did marketing and things of that kind. Of course, I love to public speak. So, in fact, we gained a lot of the clients to my public speaking to various groups, the Bar Association. I spoke to the Real Estate Association. I don't know if you remember 1986. That may be before your I know you were around then, I guess, somewhat. But there was a major law change. And so, therefore, we had a couple of banks sponsor a seminar. We had two or 300 people come to the presentations we did. So we were able to leverage off the law change there pretty effectively to gain new clients. So, again, it, it took me about probably two years to fill up that 65% of the staff. But sometimes they were sitting around twiddling their thumbs. I mean, no doubt about it. But even in today's market, if you got a good staff, you really want to keep them. And really, I had more of the staff that wanted to come with me, and I just took the premium ones is what I did rather than taking the ones that were not as good as the ones I took. And so that's really what I did. It was a challenge there for a period of time when the income went to virtually zero, and it was a challenge. Okay. Okay. I'm curious. So... It sounds like you had an entrepreneurial streak from the get-go, or at least wanted to have some control over your own destiny. Did that come from the experience doing the paper route, or do you come from a family of entrepreneurs and individuals? Not really. My dad was a postman, and my mom was a school teacher. Now, I had four brothers, so my mom gave up school teaching when she got married and raised five boys, which is a big challenge for her. But when the fifth boy started in the kindergarten, she went back to teaching kindergarten and taught it for another 40 years. But the time I was at home coming up, she was a stay-at-home mom with uh, five boys, and there was a lot of stress on her. But I was in the middle of the pack. My brother ahead of me got a few little scrapes here and there, so I looked like an angel compared to him. So therefore, I kind of floated along. And most people experience being in the middle kid. You're, I don't want to say the forgotten kid, but certainly it's not as much focus from the parents as it would be if you were an only child or even two children uh, when you get five kids, it's a it's a tough to keep up with all the kids and keep them going in the right direction. So I, I wanted to reach out. I, of course, my folks didn't have a lot of money, so I wanted to start making money. As soon as I could start making money, I got the paper route and started making a little bit of money. And I've been entrepreneurial ever since, really. Okay. Okay. I was curious where that came from because, yeah, some individuals really prefer the stability and security, that kind of feeling that you have working as an employee, right, in a job. And some individuals prefer that, but you seem to definitely not like being limited. When you said your boss said you were too young <laughs> to be promoted and then the other boss taking all the credit. I was just curious where that came from. And again, they were from having bosses. Of course, you're, you're in business for yourself. I guess I've got 800 bosses now because I've got 800 <laughs> business clients. And you're like, gee, so we got 800. So it's a different experience, certainly, than dealing with one boss that controls your whole destiny. Okay, okay. Oh, so many things to ask about. And obviously, you like teaching. How many years did you teach, including the IRS time? Well, the IRS time was one year. And again, they, IRS, one thing to do is good training and the good experience I got there. And, and so even today, we're more of a tax firm than we are. We don't do any audits. We do a handful of reviews. But most of the stuff is tax presentation and tax representation and tax preparation. And we get it, referrals from other accountants to represent their clients uh, in an audit, an IRS audit, because that's something... That certainly I did. I mean, I taught IRS agents in the 70s how to do audits, and so I understand where they're coming from, and it's amazing. They pretty much use the same processes today they used 40 years ago. So therefore, I know how they think, what they want to do, and I try to make their job as easy as possible and move along with the audit to give them what they need and help them close their case as quickly as they can because that's really what they want to do. Okay. Okay. 
I'm not sure if I should ask this or not, but you brought up having a partner earlier and then the split. My father was a CPA and he had a partner many years ago. I was very young. I remember him saying, partnership is like a marriage, except that you don't love the other person. <laughs> well, a little cynical. So, no, yeah, no, it is. I, I tell people that all the time. You've got to have respect for them and you've got to do whatever and you've got to make sure you have a common goal in life and where you're planned or where you want to go. And when you get distracted from that, either from a marriage standpoint, and he got a little distracted there in his marriage is what happened. And therefore, he and I got to a point where almost if money went in the bank, it was who could get to the bank first to pull it out. So it really wasn't, you know, a goal-oriented team as you should have in a practice. The partners I have now, they're, they're phenomenal. I mean, they're all focused on the same ultimate goal. We're all working together. We feel like family. And you're right. So there is a business marriage effectively, and you want to feel like you're family, that you're working together, you're helping each other out, that you're not out for yourself and not worried about the other person. What did you learn from that experience going through that initial partnership? Again, it's finding someone that has the same goals and the same focus on life as to where they want to go and what they want the firm to do as compared to not doing that. So when you and I separated in April of 88, basically I went until January of 2013 before I got another partner. Okay. And so I went to that's 25 years or whatever that is without a partner. And then the partners that are with me now are women who have been with me for, now they've been with me 35 years, 36 years. So they've been with me a long time. So they already knew me. They respected me and I respected them and understood their family dynamics and where they wanted to go. And they understood mine. And again, it's worked out as a great business marriage, no doubt about it. Wonderful. How many partners do you have now? Well, it, uh, right now, today, in fact, I'm technically no longer a partner. And I guess I'm partner emeritus now because I've sold the entire firm to them. And I told them I'd continue working as long as they saw value in having me there, which so I'm still working. I probably work 1,200 hours this year. Next year, hopefully a few less. So I had two partners for five years or six years, I guess. And then the first of this year, we brought in two additional partners. The next layer, when you have a firm, you want to have layers of partners in different ages so that effectively younger ones can buy the older ones out as they retire and move forward. So that's what we've done with this first series. And they brought in, again, the, the layer under them. We're hoping to find another layer under them. So we have the two partners that are both in their late 50s. I have the, the other two younger partners. One is like 45 and the other is 37 or something like that. And they're all hugely hardworking people. Couldn't ask for a better team, really. So it's been great. But they all, even the two new partners have been with me for one of them for 10 years and one for 15 years. So you understand them and they understand you. And that works out to be a great team. Okay. Okay. A large part of our audience is earlier on in their careers, everything from they've just declared accounting <laughs> as a major and right. you know, they're just doing research to the first five years in their professional career. And obviously other people listen as well, but that's really who we target the show at. What are some of the, I guess, lessons that you learned about building a practice over the years? Or maybe a different way to say that is what are some of the items that, that people don't realize about building a practice. People earlier in their career should know if they were going to go out and go out on their own. Well, they've got to have joined community. I was uh, in the county we're in. We're the largest firm inside of Atlanta, Clayton County, uh, the largest firm in the county. And we are deeply involved in all community activities, everything from Chamber of Commerce to the uh, Rotary Club to the other things. So it's a matter of getting involved in the community and have them see you as a quality person in the community. The Rotary Club itself is not certainly a uh, marketing or business building club business, but what you want to do is to 
when people see you that you're a quality person and you do what you say you're going to do, then they give their accounting to you. So it's the rotary. I've been in the rotary for right at, gosh, 45 years now. And it's a matter that you want to, again, show that you're a dependable person. I tell people if they want to join rotary, that's great. But if they join it and do it half then effectively, people are going to see them as not a good person. They're going to see them as someone who doesn't follow through, someone who doesn't do what they say they're going to do. And that hurts your business more than helps it. So it's a matter of uh, getting involved in the community activities to the point where people can see that you're a good, dependable person, knowledgeable, because you bring knowledge whenever you're in meetings to people. And so, therefore, that works out great. So, again, it's a matter of that building up the relationships in the community so that you get referrals and that kind of thing. Okay. Okay. Hey, you said you enjoy doing public speaking or that you did for a while at least. Is that something that you still do? How did oh, yeah, I still do public doing? speaking. And I know we didn't talk about this, but I'm going to tell you, I love public speaking so much. I do some public speaking that's totally unrelated to accounting. And I do some that's still related to accounting. We speak at the high schools on what it means to be an accountant, what kind of careers in accounting do. We'll speak at the colleges about the same kind of thing. But a few years ago, probably 20 years ago, my daughter, she got involved in a TV show that she's done some blogging for, and she's done some other stuff. Well, the TV show was called Roswell. This was around 2000. And so she said, Dad, I really want to go to Roswell and understand the UFO event out there. So we went to, we've been out there three or four times. And the last time we went on a dig at the site of an actual UFO crash. Interesting thing, so I've done probably 40 speeches on the uh, fact and fishing around Roswell, New Mexico event, and I've got a YouTube video, and I'll send you that video if you want. It's a 22-minute video, which is the size speaking thing for a Rotary Club or Kiwanis Clubs. And again, I've spoken about 40 Rotary Clubs and Kiwanis Clubs giving this presentation. I enjoy because I just enjoy speaking, and so that's what I do. <laughs> okay, I don't know if you're ready for that. No, I don't know if you're ready for that one or not. <laughs> Wow, this is neat. Okay, so I'm curious, are UFOs and that kind of thing something you've always been interested in, or is that something that just came about from your daughter's interest and you got involved that way? or More from my daughter's interest. But now I've had dinner with a six-man to walk on the moon. I've had dinner with people that have been abducted by aliens. I mean, it's quite a group. My little 20 minutes of presentation goes over most all of that, so I certainly with some more views of my YouTube video on that would be fine. Again, I'll send you a link, and if you want to put the link somewhere, that's fine too. But certainly not a money-making thing, but you can see if people ask me, well, I don't want you to come speak to our Rotary Club. We have accountants in our Rotary Club. And I say, nobody hires me as a candidate after hearing this presentation. I mean, certainly if it doesn't bring me any work at all. It's just something I enjoy doing because I enjoy speaking. There's something about speaking to a group, feeling the control of their minds on what you're saying. So I don't want to sound too strong. You control them for a certain period of time. And I enjoy doing that because you feel the, the control over their thought process. And when I've given, gone through this speech, especially the faux speech, at the end of it, they're just all, nobody says anything. They're just all aghast at <laughs> the reality of what I've said. It's fun, but it's just I get empowered from speaking. So I love to speak. Well, we definitely are going to include that link in the show notes. And, and I'm trying, I don't want to, to tank the conversation either way. So what is the theme or, or the main point when you do a presentation on Roswell or UFOs? Is it more historical or what's sort of a brief outline of what you would talk about? Well, it's basically the presentation of 22 minutes and probably in there just maybe 15 minutes of embedded videos from people that have firsthand knowledge. So it's basically me outlining what happened and the thing, the event, and then each of these probably, I don't know, 10 speakers or so that each do a minute or two and tells their story of what happened that night and how they were involved or 
what their experiences are. So again, it's just a matter of is this real or is this not? People ask the thing this was really an alien event. I said, you go out there and you deal with all the experts and deal with the people who had firsthand knowledge. And it's hard to believe that all these people are lying to you. And again, I realize it's a bunch of circumstantial evidence because it's all hearsay of some people. Some people actually, we have a large video in there from a lady who was felt the material, the craft product, and her father dealt with the little aliens and she tells the story. And so again, there are pretty much leave it up for you to draw your own conclusion, but these are just the outline of the story, and these are the people who are involved in their stories. Okay. Okay. No, well, thank you for bringing this up. I am vaguely familiar with the TV series Roswell. Honestly, I always thought it was more of a, like a teenage drama kind of thing. So it, I, it was, but my daughter was involved in their bonking, and they invited us to LA for a meeting with the cast and stuff, and it was it was all good and fun. So really, they really had nothing to do with reality of what happened in 47. It was all a teenage kind of drama of these quasi-alien teenagers. But again, that kind of started the knowledge, you know, what really happened then? What really happened in 47? And that's really what I get into there somewhat, which is more historical, really, than, I guess, than just talking about the teenage thing. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. No, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, I did not see this interview going that direction. Didn't see this coming. I I like to get into people's hobbies and other interests. So thank you. Thank you. But you know, it's funny. I thought asking about the U.S. figure skating organization was going to be the highlight. Yeah, maybe, but <laughs> pales in comparison, I guess, at this point. But I do have to ask, looks like you were involved with that organization for quite a while as well. And on the finance committee, is that also just well, an interest of yours? Or uh-huh. My daughter was a competitive ice skater, started when she was eight or nine and quit when she was, I don't know, 18 or so. And so along with that, the local club naturally wanted me to be their treasurer. And then we went, uh, I got on the governing council, which is a big congress that meets once a year of the United States Figure Skating Association. And so I did that for several years. And then they asked me to be on the finance committee, which is just helping the treasurer. It's kind of like a sounding board for the treasurer and things he wants to do or things he wants to try. And we give him our opinion of that. So it was enjoyable. And I skated a little bit myself. I'm not going to go sit in the stands and watch my daughter skate. If there's ice and I can skate, then I learn how to skate, although I don't skate really good, but I can skate. So it's a matter of uh, being involved in her and, and bringing the, uh, the knowledge and the ability I have to the organization, whether it be the national organization or the local organization, bringing them what skills I could bring them. There you go. I can relate. My daughter is into running cross country and track and stuff. And for cross season, I go and I get out there and run too. I mean, <laughs> if I'm going to be there, I'm not just oh, yeah. going to sit and watch, you know. So I One thing play. about ice skating, especially in the South, and oh, you're kind of quasi in the South too, but therefore she, had, she could do something that none of her friends could do except for ice skating trips. So give her that feeling of internal confidence because she has a skill and knowledge that none of her friends would have. Her friends would want to do birthday parties at the ice rink and she'd go and of course she could skate and they couldn't and really make her feel like, give her that self-confidence that you need to get. And your daughter's probably getting that from running too. Although most everybody can run, but still the ice skating was a great experience for both her and for me somewhat too, but certainly for her. Definitely, definitely. Well, I do want to be respectful of your time. We got some questions that we cover on every podcast is the final three questions. Before we get to that, though, you've had a very full career and really very full life, too. <laughs> I have no idea we're going to get into the UFO thing. If you could go back, though, and your younger self, one piece of critical advice, what do you think that might be? Well, maybe things through rather than being too impulsive on things. I mean, you've got to think where choices are going to lead you down the road. 
I guess that's it. I mean, again, I know I think uh, people ask me, well, Ben, when will I know what you know? I said, in order to know what I know, you've got to walk the road I walked. So you've got to spend those six or seven years with the IRS immersing yourself in the code and the regs and the tax law. And then you've got to spend the three years with the international firm. And on there, you work with huge uh, multinational clients. And then you've got to start your own firm and you've got to read the law. And well, I'm going to talk about that a little bit when you ask me the three things. But uh, again, I believe in try to read and understand and try to gain knowledge. And of course, back in the days when I did it in the 70s and 80s, there wasn't all the distractions there are today with the YouTube and the two zillion channels on TV and all that kind of stuff that there are today. Those Those distractions weren't there. So therefore, you could spend more time reading. I love reading cases even today and try to understand, well, how did the uh, taxpayer feel like he was going to win this case? Or how did the government feel like they're going to win the case? And what's the differences between the two? And what's the facts and how they're interpreted by the court? So I still enjoy reading that kind of thing today. Probably makes me pretty weird, but I do enjoy that. (laughs) We need people that enjoy that. So that's okay. That's okay. Well, I do end every show with the same three questions, so we'll go ahead and get to those. The first one's usually the easier one for the guest. From a career perspective, what's been your proudest moment? Well, I want to talk about two things here from a career perspective. The career pretty much has been able to work with staff and bring keep staff together of my 17 employees, five of them been with me 35 years, seven of them been with me over 20 years. So it's building a platform and a business so that employees want to stay and spend their career with me as compared to run off somewhere else. So it's giving them flex time, giving them the time to be with their children when they have ball games. And they, as long as they get the work done, I mean, I'm fine with all that. And they appreciate that. And it's worked out great for me. But I feel like we're only put on earth for one reason is to raise good kids. So I'm certainly proud of my daughter and what all she's become, but you've got to focus on your kids because that's the only legacy you're going to leave in this world is your kids when you're gone. So certainly you've got to raise good kids. So that's what I want to do. One story I haven't told you yet, and I tell this story to most everybody. In 1991, I got a call from Brenda, and I said, Brenda, I haven't heard from you all in several years. What's wrong? She said, well, Billy's in the federal pen. I said, well, what did Billy do to get in the federal pen? Well, the last tax return he did for us was 84. We haven't filed since because Billy lost his son in a freak accident. He didn't really care. He's aching out of living, but he didn't care. So the IRS shows up, you know, sends him some letters. He throws them away, show up at his house, and he says he get around to it second time they showed up at his house. He said he get around to it third time they showed up at his house. And Billy, we left it with a federal judge's order last time. You're in contempt of court. They put him in a federal pen. I went and spent four hours in the federal pen with him and did his returns and got him out of jail. And that's my favorite story of what the IRS can do to you if they really want to. But oh my God. have I covered that question good enough? I threw in that prison story because I love that story so much. But anyway, go ahead. No, no. Thank you. We could come back and do several episodes just delving deeper into a few of these topics. Wow. That's an amazing service you did for that man. Wow. Well, second question, tell us about a lesson that you learned the hard way. And the more you can tell us about the situation, the more details you can give us, the better, because that's really how we learn from these. Well, the mistake that I've made, and certainly I've learned lessons from them, is investing in client businesses or investing in something that I know very little about and depend on the client to do it. Back in the late 80s, I invested, a client came to me and wanted to start up a, well, it was a cheesecake factory at the time. They wanted to start up and go in, and then I went out and raised money to do it, and, and we were starting to do good and make money, and then the cook, who was a woman, um, got a new boyfriend and decided she'd quit. And I didn't know how to cook anything, so therefore the business collapsed. And so it's a matter of depending on yourself. And I tell people, look, learn what you do best and do that. Don't try to do things that you're not good at and do something you want to be the best at it you can possibly be. So doing things you don't know how to do gets you in trouble and investing in people that 
I'm going to let you down like they did. Certainly was a tough learning experience for me. You know, I've run into a lot of CPAs in my career that have had business opportunities come to them and like that, and it ends up falling apart for some reason. And I've run across a few where it's worked out, but I've run across many, many more that got into something that they didn't really understand. Yeah, and learn the same lesson. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And a lot of CPAs feel like, gee, oh, it's a, we had one in my local town here, and then it was the bookkeeper for a flower shop and said, oh, gee, that looks easy. I've been a bookkeeper for 10 years. I can do this. So they bought the flower shop from the owner, and naturally it failed because they didn't understand flowers, even though they understand the bookkeeping part of it. There's something more to it, the business, than just the accounting part of it. So you've got to understand all that. And again, that wasn't what she was the best at, so she shouldn't have done that. And I've learned that. Try to do what you're best at and focus on that. Don't do things that you're not that good at or think that someone else is going to take care of because ultimately it's going to be you having to take care of yourself. Good point. You need to focus on your children because that's your legacy and so you need to raise good kids. And I feel like I've done that. I agree 100%. Well, the last question is, what's the best piece of advice that you have ever received? Well, somewhere early on, and I guess it was in college, the accounting professor, I believe it was, told us to read, read all the time. And so you'll never see me sitting, staring at the wall. I'm going to be reading something. Nowadays, it's more listening to podcasts or trying to learn and expand my knowledge of not just accounting and tax, although a good bit of that. I read the Journal of Taxation every month and almost cover to cover all the cases. I enjoy reading those. And again, it, it expands my knowledge and my experience and my ability to help my clients and my staff focus on things. And certainly that was probably the best piece of advice to give me is you're constantly learning, focus on things that are going to bring value to your foundational knowledge when you deal with a client, certainly. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, please do send me the link to the YouTube video you mentioned. And while you're doing it, go ahead also and send me the link to whatever page you would want the audience to visit on your own website if they want to find out more about you and your firm. Okay? Sure. Sure. I'm certainly willing to give this presentation to Sprittany Rotary Kiwanis Clubs, and I'll do it now on Zoom if they want to. My club is meeting on Zoom, so we can do you can have Zoom presenters from anywhere in the nation or anywhere in the world, really. So it's quite interesting. So if someone wants me to come to their club and speak, drop me a note, and I'll Zoom in, and we can do this presentation. That'll be fun. Beautiful. Well, audience, you heard it. If you want Ben to talk to your group, drop in line. Thank you very much, Ben. I appreciate your time. No problem. Anytime, Mark. Well, that was my interview with Ben Loggins of Loggins Kern McCombs in Atlanta. And honestly, I had no idea we were going to get into the discussion of Roswell, New Mexico. I knew we were going to discuss some of the other items, but Roswell caught me completely by surprise. And honestly, I really appreciate that he brought that up because it's always nice to see different facets of the guest. And so it was interesting to hear about basically some of his hobbies. That was very refreshing. So Ben, thank you very much for sharing that. Well, like I always mention, if there's anything I can do for you in your own career, please feel free to reach out. Or if you need a speaker for an accounting association, it's so easy to do these days virtually. I'm happy to help in any way I can. Well, with that, I think we'll go ahead and wrap it up for this week. This has been Where Accountants Go, the Accounting Careers Podcast. I'm Mark Goldman, your host, and we'll see you all next week. There's more to come.